You are listening to The Renegade Economist, investigating monopoly profits, great corruption, and the policy solutions demanded. Geeky but essential, the tools to the fairest and most efficient economic system await. With your host, Carl Fitzgerald. All right, dear listeners, we're joined this month by Tyson Yunkaporta, the author of Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. Tyson, uh, thanks so much for joining us here. The book is just such a breath of fresh air. If you haven't read it, have have a look at uh, Booktopia and just the reviews there are glowing. And yeah, if you get a chance, uh, check out some of Tyson's other podcast interviews from around the globe. Uh, Certainly... So many good yarns coming from this man. So uh, welcome, Tyson. Thanks for joining us. Hey, good to be here. Brother, you got a great radio voice, I tell you. It's just so, I don't know if anybody knows what your appearance is like. Like you look like you're up in the hills making fishing lures out of body parts from people that you've just murdered and <laughs> <laughs> buried under a rock. It's like, and, and then there's this smooth-ass radio voice coming out. I'm like, this is this is incongruous. Yeah. Well, we've done it in a good way. Done it a few times. There's well, the only thing that that's uh, put to use in terms of death on our land are uh, rue rue based roadkill into the biochar pile, and um, away we go. Uh, cooking that up for a nice. few months, um, bringing the land uh, nice. back never, to life. Never waste your roadkill. No. Never waste your roadkill. Let's get it. Yep. That is true. So, yeah, uh, you know, I want to delve into the book, uh, but I wanted to start off um, talking a bit about this big picture story. And a lot of Sand Talk is, it covers the importance of communication and various comm strategies to ensure that you effectively communicate uh, as well as seeping it into uh, long-term thinking. But... Uh, yeah, that, that's something I certainly need help with because uh, um, the thing that, that spruiked me into uh, contacting you was, was your reference about the importance of land and the law of mm. the land. So if we start mm. off with that big picture story, you know, how would the law of the land looked once upon a time? Perhaps uh, we can segue into how can we make the best of this this mess that mm. we're sitting within at the moment? Well, the law of the land doesn't really go away. It's it's pretty much like the laws of physics. And, you know, I mean, you could just come under the laws of physics and acknowledge them and live accordingly. <laughs> and that would be enough, I reckon, um, to bring you back under the law of the land, you know, to actually be able to live in a way that's embedded in your your landscape that's not based on illusion but based on law, you know. And the law of the land, it doesn't go away. It's not – it hasn't been ended. Our, um, uh, you know, our, our lifestyles and the stack uh, that, that of abstractions that's been built on top of it, the, these things are living in a way that's separate from the law of the land. So it's not about, you know, what would the law of the land look like if it came back but it's more like what what would we look like um, in a return? What would we look like if all of us 
settlers, non-settlers, all were able to live together under the law of the land, what would it be like to be embedded in that landscape? And, you know, in the transition towards that, you know, it, it looks like very much like you um, making sure there are closed loops around things like roadkill <laughs> in the system, which is deadly. You know, it's amazing the, the things that happen and the uh, abundance that occurs you know, just from acknowledging the laws of physics alone and uh, living within that, you know, uh, understanding systems and their structures. I think that's that's really the key. So for me, complexity theory is a, is a really good sort of uh, 101 sort of translation space, you know, for beginning to come into a kindergarten level of, of understanding the law of the land again and slowly transitioning back to it. You know, so I'm engaging quite a bit with systems thinking and complexity science as a kind of, a, I don't know, like a standardized protocol, you know, between two different, completely different operating systems. Uh, like a little lingua franca, a creole sort of space um, where we can dialogue and get some interesting stuff done. And I guess that's just what that, you know, incredibly um, sort of <laughs> juvenile <laughs> um, kind of provocation that was the book um, Sand Talk. It, it, it was about that. It was about uh, a sort of trickster way of having a bit of fun um, and us just having a bit of a wrestle around and a play around in the, in the mud of complexity for a minute and, um, you know, smiling at each other as we did. Even if you, like, get a little bit of a cut under your eye and, and there's a bit of grit in there and it's, it's a bit uncomfortable and a bit shitty and, and, and I don't know, has a cat been using this dirt before it turned into mud? This What's that I'm smelling? You know, and, and then laughing about it and, you know, and then we go and have a shower together and, and then it's just, you know, um, you know, it's, 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 it's up to us what happens after that. But often that uh, complexity can be boiled down into um, elemental simplicity and looking at the work of Fritjof Capra and others in the space of biomimicry. You know, what nature, yeah. te- what nature teaches us. There's so much there to, to reconnect with. Yeah. I was supposed to have a yarn with him this week. No, last week, last Friday, we were supposed to have a yarn together. He was coming on my podcast. Kind of sums up this lunar cycle for me. Uh, Yeah, so, okay, so, yeah, you were connecting with so many people, I imagine, because um, of this lateral nature of storytelling that you've brought to... brought to us and i wanted to make a list of all the topics from one one single chapter <laughs> but it was too many too many topics to sort of <laughs> surfed across but all tied together in a beautiful manner and uh you know coming back to this sort of systems thinking and this concept of sand talk uh the chapter in the book on sand talk uh, really was uh, a, a great um uh metaphor for the that big picture scale and uh, somewhere in the book you write uh, what would it take to free your mind again to allow it to see the big pictures mm. yeah what would it take uh, unfortunately we, we can't get there through inner work and personal development <laughs> which I think is the hope of people you know when they pick up a book they think um, oh, I'm, I'm going to learn something you know for my personal development <laughs> Yeah, and I'm going to grow. 
<laughs> if that was possible, then everything would be dead. If you could just grow on your own, everything would be dead. Because you'd just get like, there'd be one lion on the savannah who, you know, built up his, he could suddenly, he had like, he was 10 times faster and stronger than the other lions. And then, um, you know, it would just be all of his lion babies everywhere. And, and then all the lions would suddenly be 10 times stronger and, and, and faster, but out of step with the, with the co-evolution of everything else in that environment. And like, there'd be no zebras, all the zebras would be dead. Everything would be dead. You know, the whole place would be desert in about five minutes. You, um, you know, development is not a personal thing. Uh, growth, all of these things, they're the wrong words anyway. But your increase doesn't happen in isolation. Your increase is symbiotic. It's communal. It's collective. Um, and everything around you has to come with it. And that includes the context that you're forced to inhabit once removed from your habitat and that context now there is um that system there are economic structures there there are all kinds of structures you know that we have to inhabit that um you know impact on what we can do and how we can grow and whether we can even grow at all um yeah so it's a it's a it's a pretty tricky thing it's like when you're at a party and, and, and I don't know, you, you know, you know, when everybody's streaking and everyone's running down the street naked. I've never experienced this, but I've seen it in films. I, I did grow up in the 70s and 80s. So, um, you know, that's what you watch when you're a kid. I hope a really weird American movies. And, you know, and they're all streaking, running down the street. Who was the first one to take his pants off? And, and how did that happen, you know? But chances are it didn't start with one person taking their pants off because that is seldom an invitation for everybody else to do the same. They're all just going to be pointing and laughing. Somewhere there's a phase shift between everybody standing around playing beer pong and then everybody running naked down the street. There is a phase shift that happens there and, and nobody quite knows how that works. Um, yeah, anyway, that's that's my view on uh, – that's my – like indigenous take on uh, <laughs> personal and collective development, beer pong and nudity. But, but uh, you point rightly to those structural factors, uh, you know, the so-called free market really is an oligopoly and uh, this treadmill of ever accelerating land prices, others, you know, mm. those factors that that force us to, to take any gig we can find uh, on, on so many levels and, uh, yeah. and and commit to the system. And so, you know, that... Uh, oh, and, and be in endless, endless, endless personal development, endlessly training up in mindfulness. So it's a sort of, you know, because it's your job to patch yourself up and do that first aid to be able to get back out there. That's your job. You take care of yourself. You are your safety net. And it's all about uh, you staying on top of that. That's what it is to be the neoliberal subject. But here's the thing. We don't, um, we don't look at systems and we don't look at structures because, you know, all of our inquiry is post-structuralist, you know, for the last few decades. And when I say all of us, I mean all of us because in the Indigenous Academy is the same. You know, um, all of our, you know, post-colonial theory um, and, and, you know, the stuff we've built on off the back of post-structuralist feminism, uh, all of the critique and the, uh, the critiques of imperialism and everything else, 
you know, all of this, this stuff has been post-structuralist, which has meant, you know, in this sort of Western ethos where it's you choose one thing or another, you have to completely reject the other. So we've all rejected structuralism and we're ignoring all those data sets, which means we reject systems thinking, which means we reject complexity science. So here we are, you know, people with a, 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 an ancient method of inquiry that involves, you know, uh, the most advanced, you know, complexity science you could imagine. None of us are using those gifts and those skills. Instead, we're all engaging in discourse analysis to point out the languages and structures and the semiotics of expressions of power. And um, so we're all engaged, much to this system's delight, in, um, you know, th this exercise of, well, if we can change, you know, if we can change the symbols, yeah. uh, you know, if we can change the images and the, uh, the language, change the words, then we can change the world. <laughs> so we're all engaged in this sort of endless debates around what we're going to call things in order to, uh, you know, talk truth to power, like as if true power doesn't already know the goddamn truth. And we don't even see the structures of things, let alone attempt to facilitate a phase shift in the system, you know, um, by leveraging the basins of attraction within those, those structures. Uh, finding the leverage points and um, and making those changes to our actual condition. Um, that's where we are. And um, I guess sand talk is a bit of a frolic around sort of playing with the idea of, hey, what if we saw the structures and the systems? Hey, what if we engaged, you know, in activities that would foster the conditions for emergence? Hmm and you know um for collective engagement in that way and what if that was fun oh the fun yeah well it, you know we've had uh you know certain learnings thrown our way from um what was his name fukushima the end of history and then uh, margaret thatcher's there is no alternative uh, we're led to believe that know really yeah. uh you know this economic system capitalism is the only way forward there is no community only individuals yeah yeah, yeah it's been a, a weird few decades isn't it it has uh, alongside the rise of the online commons where so much of the internet mm -hmm. has been built through the community that's unleashed all this productivity but when it comes to including the community in uh, our base decision making uh, that mm -hmm. that's uh that's papered over and so i love this sort of challenge you're throwing to the wellness industry that perhaps they need to balance it out with um some work in uh the civic space yeah that's it and look and it's 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 ignoring the the forced choices that that are made available to us all of our thinking you know that leads us to completely ignore systems and structures you know it's always about a forced choice between two abstracts as if they're the only possible things available to us. It's always this continuum between left and right. You know, you're either for the collective or you're for the individual. You know, or, you know, you can move around on that scale. You can be a bit of both or whatever, or, you know, you can be moderate left or moderate right. But in the end, it's all down to a, a binary and it's a competition. You know, everything's a competition, uh, which basically makes everything ineffective 
when everything's politicized, it, it means you can't be agile, you can't pivot, you can't um, you can't look at the structure. You identify metrics early on and you stick to that and you stick to your guns and you double down no matter what data's coming in. So, you know, you, you're either like, you know, a, a COVID denialist or a COVID realist. You're either, you know what I mean? And, um, and then there's all these different brands. Whenever anything pops up, it's like, oh, which side's this going to go on? You know, or repurposing drugs that goes on that side. That's lunatic. When, uh, you know, or, uh, you know, um, I, I don't know. It's it, like, like this idea of, you know, um, like individual sort of territories and nations uh, and states usually and regions doing their own, you know, uh, individualized sort of lockdowns. It's like, well, you're, you're for that or against it. And it's like, well, how about like seeing the entire thing and going, okay, so a lockdown's not actually going to work unless everybody in the world does it at the same time. Everybody in the entire world locks down for a few weeks. That's it, finished. It's Because it, <laughs> it's either that or it's not going to work. But instead, what we have is just endless arguments in our little regions and across them about, you know, whether you're for that or against it, uh, these individual lockdowns. And, and basically, that's what we're going to spend most of the next decade doing, as far as I can see at the moment. <laughs> while everybody holds out for the new normal more yeah. <laughs> a return to the old normal and there just isn't it's all these forced choices it's like you know you know spit or swallow like as if that's the only choices that are available to you how about get that thing out of my face how about that choice i don't know it's just insane choices you're on 3cr's beloved community-owned airwaves and this month we're talking with Tyson Yunkaporter, the author of Sand Talk. Uh, please check out the book and um, check out uh, his, some of his work online, Tyson. I noticed the great piece uh, you wrote in the Griffith Review. Oh, yeah. All our landscapes are broken, right story and the law of the land. And uh, it talks about sort of, you know, this connection, this um complexity theory you're discussing uh but again these structural issues come through and uh yeah it's like people are trying to improve their behavior without understanding the rules of engagement and mm. it's crazy we all want to be wealthy but f so few really want to understand the economic laws that determine whether you've got money in your wallet on a friday night or not that's it well, look, that, that one was all about um, predictive modeling. Yeah. Like the predictive modeling technologies that are out there and um, and just, you know, uh, why they're inadequate from an Indigenous point of view. So I was talking up that, that whale story and the predictive modeling, um, you know, methods of inquiry that we have, the predictive modeling technologies that Indigenous people have and some of the... Um, communications I've been privy to between people in the north, you know, uh, law people in the north and law people down here and the way they communicate around um, whale signs and things that happen along that song line, that whale song line that connects right the way up to there, um, you know, so that they'll, they'll, they'll call up and go, hey, look, there's this whale doing this here. The story's changed. And then the old people here will look and then they go out to that place there that, um, the old girl go out to that women's business site there and she'll, <laughs> um, yeah, she'll look and see, see what's coming. And then they, 
they they talk that up and it's it's quite interesting um how accurate it is you know systemically sort of using those metaphors uh of those that's that those narrative sort of landscapes that we have um yeah it's really quite beautiful that piece ended up uh producing some interesting work the use of time and how that traveled along mm. the coast and the behavioral changes that were reflected mm. and, and cross-referenced mm. with other um, plays in the landscape but here western man is we still rely so much of our analysis on uh, a static model a point a fixed point in time and uh, we're meant to take that as a given rather than see how uh, the history of time um relates to that prediction and whether we go back to using that same prediction. But, of course, we, we stay uh, in this static model which happens to suit the powers that be rather than look at mm. how uh, economic behaviours change over time. Yeah, that's it. Um, I mean, well, well, that's it. I mean, you, you, have to be, you have to be ready to flow, you know, um, you have to have to be ready to flow within the field. Like you have to be, you can't have those observer effects of standing outside of the field and trying to observe it and see what's going to happen. You have to be in it and of it. And, you know, I guess, you know, when I do these written pieces, these are usually, they're not to report findings. They're usually to provoke something and, and get some, uh, they're usually a provocation uh, f- for different thinkers to come in and, and start doing things. So that ended up, uh, that little piece on the predictive modeling ended up leading to leading, you know, to a, a, a team of um, a team of, of, of Aboriginal people in, engaging with, uh, you know, cybernetics and particularly artificial intelligence uh, to sit down and look into that, uh, you know, those sugarscape sort of uh, those early sort of sugarscape, you know, m- models that were built for predictive modeling and, um, you know, there was particularly because they started out with a very simple program that was um, what they called the hunter-gatherer phase. <laughs> and their idea of hunting and gathering sort of looked more like to us like a sort of frontier life <laughs> for colonists, just that that random chaotic craziness of, of going through a landscape and tearing it apart and murdering each other and, and just raping and pillaging everywhere. It's like, well, that's actually not <laughs> together away. So what would a, a, an early stage, what would a um, predictive modeling software look like if it was built on, on an actual uh, hunter-gatherer, you know, set of knowledge? And so we went into that for a long time and we were trying to make a prototype for that, but it, it turned out it would be like 20 years work just to get something basic up because that, that knowledge is so complex and we, you know, we figured that um, you couldn't have agent-based modeling software that where the agents are running around in this void, this just landscape that's disconnected uh, from them, that the land, the land itself would have to be an agent. And it's like, well, how the hell do we make uh, the land an agent in this sort of digital space? And um, anyway, that led us to all these thoughts on neural nets and then we were looking at the problems with neural nets and then we were thinking about, well, what kind of algorithms could we get together to resolve those issues? And then that led us to evolutionary computing and genetic computing. And so then we, were, then we got obsessed with some of the problems associated with uh, genetic computing. Um, like it, it, it's really cool. So they have these, 
they have these algorithms that are sort of patterned on human DNA that sort of do all these different things. And a lot of them do things they can't even, they don't even know what they are. They have them playing chess and playing Go and all this, this weird stuff. Um, but then they kind of like split them in half and splice them with other ones randomly. And then they see what that algorithm will do. And then they try and cycle that through many generations. They, uh, they speed it up so they're splicing different ones and forming new generations. And then they're selecting the fittest ones that are doing the most interesting things and they form the breeding stock for the next generation. And then they run through, you know, a, a, you know, a thousand generations of that or whatever and then they see what, they, what kind of algorithms they end up with. But they keep running up into the same problem, which is after a while... Um, the algorithms just become stupid. They lose all vigor and utility. Like there's massive growth for a while and then they sort of hit this this ceiling. And so they've tried lots of different breeding patterns <laughs> for these in evolutionary computing to sort of get past that. Anyway, so we decided, well, what if we, uh, what if we took the marriage algorithm um, from a Murray kinship system and we actually took that marriage algorithm, you know, of, of all these different clans and who can marry who. And what if we applied that as an algorithm to breeding these, uh, <laughs> to breeding these things? <laughs> and then maybe we can end up with a neural net that will be what we're looking for to create a sentient digital landscape. This is how this is how weird and complicated it gets. Jeez. Anyway. And, and But then that led us to, I mean, that led us down a whole heap of different rabbit holes because in the end you find um, there's this kind of uh, law of physics that comes through. It's, it's kind of a natural law that comes through. You know, I was talking before about the law of the land. But there, there's always a trade-off, you know, in computing with these things. So there's a trade-off between speed and efficiency on one hand and complexity and diversity on the other. So the more complex or diverse an algorithm becomes, which is what you're after, <laughs> but the more complex and diverse it comes, the slower it gets, like the less efficient it is. And But see, the marketplace is after faster. So, you know, you're looking for the algorithms that are most efficient and most quick because they'll be able to make things run quicker. The only problem is that it's a seesaw. If you increase the speed and efficiency, then you decrease the complexity and you get a stupid algorithm, you know. So it's constantly trying to find the holy grail of how you break that law, as far as I can see it, you know, and they apply all kinds of different things. They apply uh, survival of the fittest algorithms they supply random selection you know all these different things to how they're going to you know have these algorithms breeding in this space and and, and you know moving towards something that might realize the dream of having artificial general intelligence and being able to upload your consciousness to a satellite and become a freaking demigod <laughs> and finally separate yourself from the horrendous horrendous natural systems that's so dirty here anyway so we, we ended up i don't know so we ended up identifying this as a law and going well this is a law of the land in the digital world is that you know um yeah you can't that you know if you increase speed and efficiency then you end up with a decrease in complexity so you need to maintain complexity and have a reasonable speed or whatever but the idea is you know slow down a bit bit more slow tech there because uh <laughs> the faster you get um the stupider things get mm. 
And I don't know, you 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 tell me as as we yarn along. Yeah. I mean, historically you can look at a billion examples of that. Yeah, um, well what... Yeah, from the Manhattan Manhattan project to bloody anything else. Every time we've made these big technological leaps, we've we've sacrificed, you know, every time there's speed, complexity's lost, and there are horrendous horrendous uh, externalities that occur that end up killing everything and everyone. So mm. take a minute, just take a minute, <laughs> have a think through a few generations and, and, and a few different sort of, you know, systemic sort of perspectives on things, you know, just before you, you know, make CRISPR and win a Nobel Prize, just take a minute. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Good morning, slaves, and welcome to 3CR. This is a stimulator, and whenever I want to get some radical propaganda, I listen to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne. Well, truth be told, I was really hanging on in that conversation, wasn't I? But hey, there were themes of steady state economics, the 100th monkey coming on board, humans as the neoliberal subject, the concept of flowing in the field, whilst ramming against forced choices. Uh, Yeah, and what about a, a trickster's way to engage in complexity? I needed a refresher on uh, complexity and uh, good old wiki summarizes complexity as characterizing the behavior of a system or model whose components interact in multiple ways and follow local rules meaning there is no reasonable higher instruction to define the various possible interactions well there we go jumping into the realm of science yeah is there some some hidden meaning we've we've missed altogether well listen to the next part of uh, this interview on the podcast I love it. I didn't realize uh, we're with an indigenous futurist here on 3CR, Tyson Yankaporta. But uh, yeah, fascinating. Oh, you got me excited though. And then you you ta- you took a, 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 a tangent uh, out of left field. I was getting excited when you were talking about land as a as a parameter. And for me, uh, you know, I'd love us to try and steer clear of some of these western beliefs in complexity and you know uh, efficiency and really it's getting the big things organized correctly getting those structural Mm. parameters in place and perhaps by doing that we would have a little bit more time to actually consider whether we're using the right information medium you know maybe there are other things that uh, the west haven't mm. really connected in with that um we should be looking at uh you know let's delve off the deep end you know uh sacred sites you know there's there's something special about the energy of those places what makes that land such a magical place to visit and what can we learn from that well these are your increased centers and like all you need to know from there, like you, you probably want to stay away from those sites unless you're an old fellow that's got business there. Yeah. <laughs> is the first yeah. thing you need to know. 
And, you know, um, there is restricted knowledge for a reason. You know, the, um, the complexity of the knowledge they're working with in those increased centers is so, it's so vast that it would just explode you. People who, people who access restricted knowledge and restricted sites without the proper training and initiation stages, which is multiple, like, you know, until, you, you know, you go like 15, 30, 45, you know, and then and, and up <laughs> 60. And when you're around 60, you start to come into those. <laughs> Sometimes it happens younger for there is accelerated fellows, but, um, you know, who have to inherit knowledge, you know, um, uh, from an elder, you know, if that elder's lifespan is shortened, you know, they, they have to take that on and they have, but they have to go through um, processes that actually alter them chemically and biologically to be able to work with this knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, you know, increase is all you need to know is the difference between growth and increase. You know, growth is growing the size of the system or the number of units or some kind of stupid metric like that. That's growth. But increase is about um, is about increasing the number of relationships and combinatorials within the system that you have. And that's the difference. You're increasing relatedness, connectedness, diversity, complexity within that system. You know, and that's a system that lasts, you know. And so basically these sacred sites are increase sites. They are flow sites. There's um, the inevitable entropy that occurs in a system is resolved through those places. You know, so there is substance and energy as law coming from sky camp that's coming, you know, into and through places in the landscape. And um, that these energies are worked with by the old people. Um, and that's that work is still being done for all of us today, which is why we're still we're still alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, a lot of people think that those things are gone, but they're not. The old people are still working those things. Um, that's why those places still exist. But it's probably a good idea if, you know, there's so many tourist sites that are really obviously you can feel that they're really powerful places. And you go because, oh, yeah, no, I can feel the energy here and this is so beautiful and look at the view. And, you know, why are my children vomiting? God, they vomited in the car all the way back. There's a reason for that. You know, they were damaged by that place. <laughs> Stay away from that place. You know, there's uh, stuff that needs to be done there. At the same time, there's big community ceremony that happens that's everybody's business, you know. And, um, you know, that's that's that big collective mind that has the computational power and capacity to... Um, to actually, you know, process a lot of the information that comes out of those increased ceremonies, you know, where everybody's, okay, everybody's clapping together and, you know, that brings everybody into sync and that brings everybody into uh, being of one belly, of one mind. And, um, you know, uh, as a collective, you process those things and then you all go out and behave in those ways uh, in that system, you know, and collectively, there is an emergence then that happens because you're all nodes within that system. That's part of it and behaving in the right way in that system. So everything people do is, you know, having that evolutionary effect, you know, in that place of, of making the increase happen within the system. It's, it's quite a beautiful thing to live by, but there are people who are capable of keeping that. And there are people who are not, 
and you probably want to stay out of their business and stay out of those places. Well, that, that's my uh, <laughs> that's my way anyway. So that's why I stick to the kindergarten sort of level knowledge and the 101 stuff and look at translating that across into the, um, you know, these sort of beginner disciplines of, you know, physics and, um, you know, artificial intelligence and stuff like that. See, I guess in our collective, I mean, we had these affordances already in our culture that are, People are trying to tinker with technology now. But, you know, your, um, you know, your, your RAM and your central processing and all that sort of thing, you know, these are, um, these are weird things, you know, in, in computers and, and sort of <laughs> um, they're kind of inefficient. You know, the, um, the model for the hardware of computers was kind of invented back in the 1940s, I think, and they haven't really changed it since then. It's incredibly inefficient. It doesn't work very well. Um, but, you know, the affordances that we already have and the psychotechnologies and cultural technologies and, and technologies of, you know, systems within the landscape and, and, and what we need to do, all the affordances of how we, how we embed ourselves within that and uh, act as the custodial species, you know, um, all of these things are, are absolutely amazing. And, you know, very different from the sort of clunky, clunky things that we're tinkering here that are, you know, pretty much destroying the world <laughs> as we go. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, it's probably a bit brash for me to, uh, to, to put it to you in that way. But, um, you know, decades ago, people would have thought solar power was um, a, a bridge too far. And now we have uh, the Gunai Kurnai people, uh, Robbie Thorpe's clan down in Gippsland, uh, involved in a social enterprise for a solar farm. You know, so um, great to see emerging yeah. of, of worlds there and, you know, some sort of economic sovereignty hopefully coming from that. But, uh, you know, how do you see um, those structures being moulded uh, to an Indigenous way of thinking? Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I just sort of see the entire system, I guess. I mean, it's encouraging that, and I've heard that they're, they're capable of making solar panels that don't require rare earth metals now. Mm. Um, that's something. Um, they, they, they still require a massive amount of... Um, <laughs> um, they require massive amounts of extraction, you know, to make solar panels. But the, the, the bigger problem, though, is... I mean, that just supports the need for energy infrastructure anyway. If you're just focused on fossil fuels, and it's like, well, how can we extract power? What's the source of extraction for power? How can we get that? If we can make that clean, everything will be fine. You're only looking at one part. Once again, you're ignoring the structure. You're focusing on one object, one tiny part that you politicize and decide, well, you know, so the right decides that solar panels are... Um, evil and the left decides that solar panels will save us all and and these are all wrong because <laughs> i mean you got to look at the requirement for that how do you get that power to your house you know there's an infrastructure there and so i look at that and i know that there's no high grade copper ore left on the earth to dig out anymore and i look at all the wires and the energy infrastructure that that must keep doubling um, all the time, it, it must increase all the time under this growth-based economic system. 
um, uh, this endless expansion. And I can't see how they're going to, you know, every 30 years they need to replace all those wires because copper don't last forever. Um, so what next after the low-grade copper ore is all used up? What next for that? After they've destroyed the earth to get the last of that copper ore out, well, they're probably going to have to use aluminium as a conductor that's probably not quite as good, but it'll do. That means that most of the increased sites and story places, you know, that I know about, these will be compromised already because, you know, a, a lot of, you know, my homelands are situated on top of bauxite and, you know, that's all going to have to get ripped to keep up with the infrastructure requirements once we, you know, I don't know, bloody discover zero point energy or anything else. So what about Tesla coils? What about what Tesla coils that you need copper for? Um, you, you know what I mean? I can't see any way to continue with the, um, the, the, the power stuff that we have that, I mean, but I guess there aren't many people looking at it uh, systemically in that way. Also, where do the solar panels go? It's like, well, let's put it on the useless land that nobody wants. And it's like, all right, well, let's, um, let's cover 20% of the Sahara, you know, that, that's wasteland. Let, let's cover that uh, with solar panels. And that would be enough to power bloody North Africa. How awesome would that be? Would that be awesome? Does that sound good? And the problem then is that you haven't got that uh, reflection, uh, the same reflection of light happening there. And the the you get a microclimate shift there whereby you end up with more rainfall there and it completely changes. Well, that's good, isn't it? Doesn't that mean your uh, that desert is then being turned into productive land that has rainfall? Um, well, no, because those dust storms are needed because the Amazon can't survive without dust storms from the Sahara. Those dust storms, that all gets carried on the wind. Uh, that gets carried on the wind to fertilise the Amazon. And without that, that regular seasonal fertilization that occurs from the Sahara, the Amazon will die. And there's the lungs of the planet gone. You know, so there are knock-on effects. There are, there are always externalities. There are always systemic things to look at here. So, you know, whether or not you've got an indigenous community branded um, solar panel program or not, it, it, it's kind of irrelevant. That's just... Um, that's just marketing and window dressing. Mm. You know, that doesn't mean that, that uh, indigenous thought is being applied to the global energy infrastructure and industry, which, you know, interestingly enough, it, it's still the energy industry, like the structures and working conditions of extractive, um, you know, uh, coal activity, that same labor model is still applied to the solar farms. You know, so I have a relative who's worked in the coal mines and it nearly broke him. You know, those massive long shifts and, and they have to work for bloody, you know, a couple of weeks straight and then they get a week off where they basically, you know, and they, and they basically can't, they can't achieve those working hours without chemical assistance. So they all end up drug addicts. Um, and, you know, <laughs> the fallout that happens in our families and communities you know, so that's a family member and the fallout that we deal with from him doing that labor in the coal mines has been horrendous. Mm. So, you know what he shifted to? He went to work for a solar farm, exactly the same labor model, 
and exactly the same externalities in his life and all of our lives. We're all required to be his welfare system where we pick up the pieces of his life, as he, which is incredibly destructive, you know, um, because it's the same labor model. He's being asked to work beyond his limits on this solar farm in exactly the same model. It's not the things that we need to be looking at. It's the structures that we need to be looking at. We can have completely what we call clean energy. We don't have a clean structure or infrastructure or economy that that can sit within and everything still gets destroyed. So you need to look at the systems, not the things. Um, this is a hard thing to explain to people. I mean, I've just devoted bloody 10 minutes of a monologue to try and get it across, but it's, it's not what anybody wants to hear. And it's not necessarily what anybody has the capacity to, um, to work through either, because how do you, how do you fit that then into your life? You know, you think you're doing well with, you know, you're recycling and everything's going to be fine and it's freaking not. And <laughs> it's a really difficult, it's a really difficult way of thinking to take on board who the hell wants to do it. So hence sand talk, which is a bit of a rump and it's a bit of fun because, um, you know, you, you do need to laugh your way through this apocalypse. It's a, um, it's really the only way to bear it. But, you know, if you want to start coming into complexity, you, you've got to be, you got to be prepared to do a bit of play. Um, I think otherwise it's just, it is impossible to, to deal with it. Um, it's, it's damaging to your psyche to engage, you know, uh, with systems in the world. When you start to see what the systems are and the structures of those systems, it becomes very difficult to continue. Mm. Yeah, I say for anyone who's studied uh, our form of Georgia's economics, you know, a decade into it, you deserve a free geopsychiatry analysis because about the <laughs> geopsychiatry about perfect. the only people you can connect with are engineers. You know, engineers are our number one. Yeah. Uh, membership demographic and uh, they get that systems thinking they're trying to look out it's also most of most of the membership of the chinese communist party as engineers really? as well there's, there's limitations to that <laughs> yeah there are we, we do need different skill sets but it, it, yeah people are you know it's right through the education system from the way we we study to the news we're spoon-fed every night it's all on a on a micro dose, there's no sort of macro analysis and uh, really no time to actually stop and slow down and look at how two weather systems interact against a hillside and and mm. and connect in with how that uh, influences rain. So, you know, there we are. We're needing our bomb radar map uh, to tell us when, when the next rain band's coming through. So, mm. well, if those tight news cycles are micro dosing, and, and we each get our own, you know, personally tailored version of that through our algorithms, um, that would mean that, that a sort of meta-analysis would be like a, a, an OD situation, <laughs> which brings us back to the uh, mental health issues of, of systems thinking. Yeah, that's why we need to put our hands in the land, hey, and just defrag, um, weeding away whatever we're doing with our biochar and whatnot um tyson yeah look it's been a fantastic chat i wish we could keep talking um but uh yeah it's a busy world um is there any sort of parting uh 
commentary you'd like to um, cheer the listener up with? Uh, cheer, the, cheer the listener up with? Well, um, you know, only that, um, you know, uh, uh, apocalypses are, um, are not unusual things. You know, they happen all the time. They're, they've, they've, they've always happened all the time. You know, we've, we've had a million years as a species. Um, you know, we've, we've gotten very good at apocalypses. You know, we're pretty good at that. And, you know, most of us are only a century, a century away at most from, you know, a time in our living memory, in the living memory of our grandparents, you know, and great-grandparents, um, where most of the people on the planet were living quite embedded in the landscape. You know, it's only been over the last century that, that has, uh, that that's gone away. It's not a difficult thing to recover. It's not something that's lost and you've got to decipher the paintings, the cave paintings on, on a rock wall somewhere in bloody Germany to, to get back to it. You know, it's right there. It's in the stuff you heard from your granny when you were a kid. Everybody, it's there and it's, it's quite lovely. Um, I guess I could leave you with like a brief story from a fellow in the Netherlands who told me the meaning of the salamander myth. You know that uh, magical creature, Salamander, that you hear in European folklore all the time who just can live in fire and doesn't get burned by the fire? Mm-hmm. You ever heard that folklore? Well, he says that, that that story is a, you know, he had that from his great-grandfather, and that's actually a, a seasonal indicator that that story has knowledge on a song line from there in the Netherlands <laughs> that... Uh, contains um, ecological knowledge about what time you need to burn burn a particular species in undergrowth, like what time you have to burn off country in your fire stick management program. Yes, even in the Netherlands, not just in Australia, we have fire stick land management. And that uh, you had to do it exactly the right time when this thing was flowering and these insects were doing that. And that would wake the salamanders up from their hibernation and they then come up through the earth then because you've signaled that to them with your burning activity, because you're part of the environment. You have an ecological niche there. You and your activity is a seasonal indicator Um, that, you know, a couple of generations ago, people were still doing that. They were burning off the land there and the salamanders will come up. Now the salamanders are dying out because nobody's waking them up. So only a few of them are coming up in the springtime now, you know, because nobody's burning off that country anymore. It, um, it's not hard to recover this knowledge. It's all there. It's in your stories, and the stories are there. Find them. Do it. Enjoy it. Have fun. This is a time of transition, and we're transitioning to something cool um, that will get us through the thousand-year cleanup that we're about to undertake. Well, Tyson Yunkaporta, author of Sand Talk and uh, uh, Aboriginal Futurist, I think you have to call yourself after this conversation. Uh, Thanks so much for uh, taking us down uh, many little rabbit holes and tying it all together. Thank you. Sweet. Thanks, bro. of The Renegade Economist. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Check out the show notes at prosper.org.au. Find me on Twitter at EarthSharing. Occasionally on Facebook uh, under the Prosper Australia banner. Yes, stay safe out there as we search for rational solutions to 
seemingly complex problems.